So Galatians chapter 3, we're going to be talking about why Scripture matters tonight. Um, one of the challenges in preaching through the book of Galatians is in some ways it makes the same point over and over again. Uh, and so when we read this passage tonight, you can be like, oh, you know, the main point once again is you need to believe the gospel instead of trusting in your own works. But there's a, an interesting sentence in here that I want to call our attention to because it's a really fascinating line about the Word of God that actually reveals to us a lot about what Paul and actually Jesus thought about the Bible and why that matters and why we need the Bible to hold on to the gospel. Um, but before I get into that, I, I was struck, uh, you know, on my news feed on Facebook, I think I got two things that came like one after the other that I thought were pretty fascinating. Uh, I don't know if you saw this story. Um, Elon Musk, you know, who's the Tesla founder, you know, mega billionaire, you know, pseudo, super intellectual dude. Um, he tweeted uh, about an article in VentureBeat. The article was by Anthony, I don't even know how to spell his name, Lewandowski, who was the guy in charge of Google's self-driving car engineer. And now he's actually established a nonprofit religious organization. Have you heard about this? Called Way of the Future. Way of the Future's mission statement is, quote, to develop and promote the realization of a Godhead based on artificial intelligence and through understanding and worship of the Godhead, contribute to the betterment of society. Elon Musk uh, tweeted this response to this article. On the list of people who should absolutely not be allowed to develop digital superintelligence. Um, I just thought that was... Fascinating. It's interesting to see these like intellectual guys like sparring back and forth. But it, it uh, I, right after that, uh, my pastor Scott Sauls uh, posted a blog post about a mentor and former boss of his named Tim Keller that you've heard me mention, and on the importance of character in leadership. And I just thought with this fascinating thing, you know, this guy wants to, you know, promote deity or the worship should be whoever or whatever is the most intelligent being. And if it's artificial intelligence, the, like the, the characteristic of intelligence and superintelligence is the one who should be trusted in all things. But I thought it was fascinating to think about what the Bible says. The Bible rarely, you know, kind of says, well, God is the most intelligent. Yes, there are places where it says that. But over and over again, Christianity teaches and the Bible teaches that we should pay attention to God's word, not just because he's smarter than us, but because he's trustworthy and he cares about us. And so as we come even to read the scripture tonight, I want us to bear that in mind, that the one who gives us this word is the trustworthy one. The one who um, Isaiah 54, 5, one of my favorite verses says, uh, the one who is both our maker and our husband. He is the one who's made all things, but he's also the one who loves us dearly. Your maker is your husband, the Bible says, and therefore he can be trusted. And this is his word in Galatians chapter 3. We're going to read the first nine verses, and then we're going to talk about what the Bible teaches about itself and why that matters. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes this, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's a good Halloween text, isn't it? <laughs> Before your very eyes, 
Sorry, I guess I should start over if I'm going to say that. <laughs> Literally, that didn't occur to me until I was reading it. Um, I, sh I, I don't know if I needed to say that, but whatever. It's done now, isn't it? Uh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? So also Abraham, quote, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, unquote. And that's a quote from the book of Genesis. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham, quote, all nations will be blessed through you, unquote. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's pray together briefly. Lord, we do thank you for um, this word that comes to us from you. And we pray that you would open our hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, I, I think there's, in the first little section, I just want to say something about what preaching is and the Word of God and how it works, because it's a fascinating, a couple fascinating little ideas kind of stuck in this section of Scripture that are worth drawing out. Um, now, if you remember the context, or if you haven't been with us, let me just uh, tell you the context. Paul knew these Galatians. He had actually preached the gospel to them originally when he was passing through this area and became sick. And then he ended up basically getting waylaid there, preached the gospel. These people came uh, to know Jesus, had this remarkable transformation. He talks about miracles. and It was, it, you know, a tremendous work of the Spirit broke out there. Then Paul got better, and he moved on to preach the gospel somewhere else. Then some false teachers came along after Paul had left and began to stir up trouble by teaching the Galatians that it's not enough to believe in Jesus, you also need to do the right things to make sure God continues to love you. And Paul hears about this when he's somewhere else, and he writes this letter to the Galatians, and he's mad. He's mad at the false teachers, but he's also kind of like exasperated by the Galatians. And you see that in the way he starts here. You foolish Galatians. Like, can't you connect the dots? Can't you remember what happened? And, and he uses this phrase, he says, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now, what's fascinating is what does he mean by that? Well, as you go on, um, he, he basically says the same thing several times, and it helps us understand that what he's talking about, when was Jesus Christ clearly portrayed as crucified before their eyes? Well, it says it was when they believed what they heard. Um, it was when, uh, down in verse 5, they say it again. It was by believing what you heard. And here's what you understand. 
Like, Paul didn't show up with a picture of Jesus crucified. Okay? Paul proclaimed the gospel to them. And they saw with the eyes of faith, as you were, Christ and him crucified. There are, I think, sometimes we can feel like the word of God isn't enough. That we need pictures or maybe we need, you know, some kind of experience. But what Paul says here is that the preaching of the gospel is about seeing Christ clearly portrayed as crucified. One of the great Christian theologians of the 20th century, J.I. Packer, said it well when he said, the preacher's task is to display Christ. Not just to sort of explain things to you, but to display Christ crucified. And, 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 and basically, this is such a basic thing that when Paul says, basically, if you've forgotten this or lost this point, the only way I can understand it is to say you've been bewitched. Like, this is such a basic thing that you experience spiritual power by believing what you've heard. Not just intellectual assent to some truths, but, but what he says here, Christ was clearly portrayed, speaks about more than just knowing it. It speaks about having a sensory experience, a visceral experience through what you've heard, where the Spirit works faith in your heart as you hear Christ crucified, proclaimed. It's not just enough to know the message, but that is the heart of the message, right? And so if the message, believing Christ crucified, is central, well, how do we keep it central? And that's what's fascinating about the next section here is when he talks about the Scripture. He, he makes reference in verse 6 to Abraham, believed God, and it was credited him as righteousness. And that's, that's pretty interesting. We're going to talk about this next week more, about how all of the Scripture is about Christ. The Gospel is actually the key to understanding the whole Bible, but that's next week. Tonight what we're going to focus on is this phrase in verse 8, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. And here's the, the central point that we need to see here. We need the Bible to hold on to the gospel because our hearts resist the truth of the gospel. And God in his graciousness has given us his authoritative, gracious word preserves the gospel so that we're not left just to our own imaginations and to our own hearts. The gospel requires the word of God. That's what he says. We need the Bible. And look at, what, look at the way he says. Now, I don't know if, if, you, if you, I might have to draw this out for you to see what an incredible statement he's making here. When he says that Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham, what's remarkable about that is if you go back and you look at these quotes that Paul has here, they're both from the book of Genesis, and they were both spoken by God 
to Abraham before the Bible was written. So how can Paul say that the Scripture foresaw something that God was going to do in the life of Abraham? The Bible didn't exist yet. And how can Paul say that the Scripture preached the gospel to Abraham? Isn't that strange? How, how can we make sense of that? Um, there's actually a, a great professor, a guy named the Lion, the Lion of Princeton, a guy named B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. Isn't that a great name? He had a great beard, too, to go along with the great name. All great theologians have like go by their first two initials, you know. So B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield wrote this incredible essay where he points out that one of the interesting things about Scripture is, particularly the New Testament, is they, they use these phrases interchangeably. God says, it says, Scripture says. That those words, those phrases are used so interchangeably by the New Testament that the only way to make sense of that is if in the mind of the writers of Scripture, there was really no difference between those things. Here's the way he puts it. I, I put this quote down here. I know it's a little long, but it's, it's an important point to get here if you want to understand what the early church believed about the Bible. He, he lists passages like this one, Galatians 3.8, because clearly the book of Genesis wasn't written yet, and when the book of Genesis is written, it says that God spoke to Abraham. And yet Paul says Scripture said it. But the Scripture itself says that God said it. So is that a contradiction? It's not a contradiction. It actually is a letting you in on the way that these guys think about it. And actually, some of the most important things in the Bible are the things that are taken for granted and not spelled out. Uh, for instance, Acts 13, 48. Uh, not to upset everybody, but it's a fascinating passage where it talks about as many as believed, as many as were appointed for eternal life believed, is what Luke says in response to a, a, a situation where Peter, or Paul preaches the gospel and the Gentiles respond. And the Bible says, just matter-of-factly, the reason they respond is because they were appointed for eternal life. And you're like, what? He's not arguing for predestination? He's just saying the reason people believe is because of God's sovereign work. And it's more powerful because he's not actually arguing for it. He's like, this is just the way it is, guys. And that's what you have here. He's not arguing that God says, Scripture says. He just interchanges them. Because in the minds of the writer of Scripture, if God says it, the Scripture says it, it's the same thing. Here's the way B.B. Warfield says it. He says these acts could be attributed to Scripture only as a result of such a habitual identification in the mind of the writer of the text of Scripture with God speaking that it became natural to use the term Scripture says when what was really intended was God as recorded in Scripture says. That those two phrases are used interchangeably to show you that those are the same thing in the minds of the Christians. And then he goes on and says, if you look at some other passages, and I list some here if you want to go look at these later, um, what you find is all these kinds of sayings um, where other people speak, like David says something, and then the New Testament says God said it. So you have some places 
where God says something, and then the New Testament quoting that says, Scripture says. And then there are other places where Noah or Moses or David says something, and then when it's quoted in the New Testament, it says that God said it. So these, these kind of things are used interchangeably. And, and the, the, the next thing here is, um, here, here's the way to, to get at this. So Peter, in Acts chapter 4, quotes David. David speaks this thing, and then Peter says that God said it. Jesus, in Matthew 19, 4 and 5, even though Moses wrote it, he says, God said this. And here, Paul says that what Scripture says equals what God says. So what's the point of all this? The point of all this is that the way the Bible understands itself, the way the early church understood the Scriptures, was that what men said as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit God said. This is what theologians call the doctrine of plenary inspiration. Every word inspiration. Now sometimes people want to talk about how the idea of God's inerrant, infallible word is like an idea made up by later theologians. It's not true. The Bible doesn't use those words, but the ideas are there. When the Bible says that God's word are pure, pure than gold, refined seven times, that's what it says. That's how it says that the Bible is without error. And when the Bible says that it's a light unto your feet, it's a sure and safe guide, that means that it's not going to mislead you. That's what we mean when we say the Bible is infallible and inerrant. And when, it, when Scripture says, God says, and those two are equated, it's every word. It's not just the ideas that are inspired and then human beings come up with the wording and then we're free to think of whatever wording we want. No, the Bible says that it's God's word. It's God's word. Now, what's the point of all this? Well, the point of all this is that God has given us his word because we need it. And this was Jesus' view as well, by the way. It wasn't just Paul's view. You know, one of the most powerful places is in John 10, verse 34. Jesus makes a point about Psalm 82 based on a single word. A single word. Roger Nicole, who was a professor who taught um, Tim Keller in seminary, puts it so well. He goes, Jesus Christ bases his deity, this is an argument he's having with the Pharisees, about why he's God. And he bases his deity on a single word, in a secondary clause, in an unimportant psalm, written by an obscure finger figure, in the seemingly least authoritative part of scripture, which is the psalms. Hear that again. Jesus Christ bases his deity in this argument in John chapter 10, he bases his deity on a single word and a secondary clause in an unimportant psalm by an obscure figure in the seemingly least authoritative part of the scripture, which is the psalms. People often think, you know, the psalms, well, that's like metaphor and art, and it's not like dogmatic truth. But Jesus bases his deity on a single word. So yes, Jesus thought that the words, every word, mattered. Jesus actually never quotes the Bible to start an argument. 
He only ever quotes the Bible to end the argument. Because Jesus' attitude toward the scripture is, God says, scripture says, that settles it. Both Jesus and Paul believe this. And there's more I could say about that. But, but here's a potential conflict, or, or maybe you've had this thought. Well, of course Jesus believed that. He was a person of his time. In the first century, people believed that. And Tim Keller has a helpful response, which I, I think you might find helpful. He says this, there's a quote from him, if you want Jesus, but you don't want everything the Bible says, what you really mean is, I don't want the Jesus. I want to make up my own. Because the, what you're really saying is, I want Jesus, but I don't want the principle on which he based his entire life. I know that that's tempting because the Bible says some hard things. And, and I know I meet people all the time are like, I really like Jesus, but I'm not sure about the Bible. If you want to take the real Jesus, you need to, you need to consider what he thought was the most important thing. I mean, Jesus' whole life was about the Bible. You know, the, the, at, the, at the point of maybe his, well, definitely his greatest trial, he's carrying the cross, and he sees these women weeping. You know what he does? He quotes the book of Hosea. What? He, like, you'd think he's like focused on what's going on. He sees some women weeping. He's like, oh, yeah, that's, that's what Hosea talks about. Like, Jesus everywhere, when he's on the cross, he's meditating on Psalm 22, which starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And ends with, it is finished. And the scriptures quote him, the first verse and the last verse. It's what he was meditating on. It's what made sense of this experience that was so senseless. It was according to the scriptures. And according to the scriptures was enough for Jesus. So the question is, if we want Jesus, will we take the principle on which his whole life was based? But that's a hard thing. Some people would say, if the Bible is true and you have to submit to it, then that really doesn't work very well, especially in a postmodern world. There was this uh, article in Mother Jones about 10 years ago now, actually 20 years ago, but I still think it's pretty contemporary, this idea. Um, Mother Jones, Anne Monroe, writing in, a, in Mother Jones magazine, wrote this. For the most part, Americans read the Bible as a manifesto of a God who has lots of laws. But what we have to latch on to is the idea that the Bible is not facts, it's not rules, it's not proof texts. It's a story and a conversation. It's a place of imagination and engagement. This radical notion that the Bible is not always right may be frightening to many Christians. However, if you approach the text as quote-unquote truth, you can't get into a deeper place of intimacy with God. Conversation is over if you believe every part of the Bible is truth. And conversation is one of the deepest and most subtle ways of play, growth, and intimacy. And there's parts of that you can resonate with because if you have a relationship with somebody who's always right, like it's not much of a relationship, right? if they never seem to listen to you or care about your perspective. But listen, the Bible is different. Relationship with God 
is different. Because God knows all and he cares for you. He's not just like, you know, kind of flaunting his power and authority over you. And, and um, Tim Keller was, was uh, interacting with somebody once, and he said, listen, it may sound like this great, wonderful, liberating idea that if you would just quit believing that the Bible is true, and then you can have a more free, open, even playful relationship with God. He says, here's the problem with that. It may sound good, but if you don't believe what the Bible has to say, you may think you're having a conversation with God. You're really just having a conversation with yourself and you're using the Bible to do it. Because you never actually can know who God is if he can't tell you no. That's probably true of every relationship. If you're dating somebody who never disagrees with you, don't you begin to wonder whether you really know who they are? Or whether they're just always pretending to agree with you so that you will keep loving them? That's not a real relationship. If, If the Bible can't tell you no... You'll never know who God is. And here's the thing. You need the Bible to tell you no. Because there are a lot of things that you believe that need to be corrected. When your heart tells you that you're a miserable piece of crap, is there something greater than your heart that can trump your heart? Can the Bible say no? It's one thing when you read in the Bible that you're supposed to do this. You're supposed to love your enemies. You're like, oh, I don't know about that. The Bible says you need to love your enemies. But there are other times when you may not realize that the Bible's authority is important to you or necessary. And that is part of why we need the Bible, why the issue of the authority of the Bible actually matters. In RUF, I want you to understand that God's grace is all you need for a relationship with him. But if you're not convinced of that because of the Bible, it won't last. You can never separate belief in the Bible from belief in the gospel because your heart is regularly saying, no, it's too good to be true. No. No. And the Bible says, you're wrong. That's grace. It might seem like God is like this ogre who's saying, no, 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 no. And people always like, talk about that. Oh, I hate the, the idea that God is always telling us what to do. You need God to tell you what to do because your heart is telling you lies all the time. You can't really... You can't really understand Christianity unless the Bible can say to you, you know what? I know this stuff sounds crazy, but it's really true. I know that the idea that you, with all of the junk in your heart and all the stuff that you do and don't do, could ever be pleasing to God, I know that seems crazy. That's why you need more than just your friend's encouragement to believe it. You need the Bible. Because when you get down to it, what the scripture says, half that stuff just seems crazy. The Bible can be relied upon. It's true. When you're condemning yourself, 
what can say there's now no condemnation? Can the Bible say it? You can't have the true outrageous gospel without the scripture. Not in theory, not in practice. St. Augustine said one time, if you accept what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, it's yourself. And that's one of the big, big challenges. And it's worth wrestling with now because there will come days when it's harder to believe than it is right now. The last thing you want is to be trying to figure out what you think about the Bible in the midst of a trial. It's worth seeking it out. It's worth trying to figure out, okay, you know, I've never really studied this. Maybe I should study what the Bible says about itself. Maybe I should read something. I actually put some things down here for further reading, some ideas for you, because my encouragement is to wrestle with this stuff now, because it's really hard to wrestle with when you're not sure what God's doing, and then you're not sure you even have a way to know who he is and what he's like. Study this issue. Wrestle with this issue. Now, the last thing. The scripture preaches the gospel to Abraham. But look at, look at what it says. It says, all nations will be blessed through you. Does that sound like the gospel? How can, how can the scripture preach the gospel before Jesus comes? Didn't the gospel begin with Jesus? We're going to get into this more next week. But here's the simple point. The gospel is the promise of a faithful God. The heart of the gospel is a promise of a faithful God. That's why Paul can say that the gospel was preached to Abraham. And when you look at what Abraham was told, it was a promise. All nations will be blessed by you. Paul says that's the gospel because at the very heart, the gospel is a promise. I'll talk about this in a few weeks, but let me just say it here. There's a complete different relationship, a promise relationship and a law relationship, right? If I say, Tommy, come over to my house tomorrow and rake up our leaves and I'll give you a million dollars, he's probably going to be there, right? But if he doesn't show up, he's not getting the money. If he doesn't rake the leaves and do a good job, he's not getting the money. But if I say, Tommy, I'm going to give you a million dollars, that's a completely different arrangement. The only one who has to be faithful in that case for him to get the money is me. I have to fulfill what I've promised. And the Bible says the gospel is a promise agreement, not a law agreement. So many people think that salvation is like this infinite overpayment for something they did, inviting Jesus into their heart. But they still think at the root it's something they did. But the Bible says, no, the gospel is a promise. And the one who has to be faithful for you to get all of the blessings is Jesus. And that's why Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, as many promises as, the, as God has made, they are all fulfilled in Jesus. I love the old King James. It says, um, so as many promises as the gospel has made, they are all yea and amen in Christ. The heart of the gospel is a promise made and kept by a God who can be trusted. That's why Paul says it this way. The gospel, the good news, did not 
begin when Jesus came. Jesus was actually the fulfillment of the character of God manifest. The gospel is God's character in action towards people who don't deserve it. That's why the gospel is all through the Bible. We're going to talk about why that matters next week. God's message has been the same all through the Bible. If you have a relationship with God, it's because of his faithfulness, not yours. But that's hard to believe, isn't it? Because what other relationship is like that? That's why you need the Bible. (laughs) Because the Bible says it over and over and over and over again in lots of different ways, trying to get this life-transforming truth into your hearts, into our community. Let's pray together.